Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're heading back to Hollywood, where sadly, the curses are not falling solely on the CEOs. <laughs> I've already gone too political. <laughs> Our guest this week is Josh Winning, who's been to a movie set or two in his time. He's spent years as an entertainment journalist here in the UK, and now he's turned his pen to telling his own stories. Burn the Negative is his second novel, and it's a trip into horror history, with a Jinx movie and the former star who survived it first time around. Josh and I talk 90s horror movies, the uncanniness of child stars, the pros and cons of nostalgia, and the unholy Hollywood trinity of Freddy Krueger, Winona Ryder, and Lorraine Warren. Oh, and forgive my rant about A24. I know a lot of you will disagree. That's fair. I was clearly in a mood. <laughs> if you enjoy Talking Scared, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a review. They're very, very important and appreciated. And if you want more stuff, you can sign up for Talking Scared Patreon. For a few dollars a month, or the currency of your choice, you can support this show and get many, many hours of extra episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or use the link in the show notes. Equally, you can find it via the brand new website, talkingscaredpod.com. We've had a lot of new supporters in recent weeks, and I want to say a huge thank you to them all, but the list is pretty long, so that's in the outro after this interview. Because now, off we go to a dusty back lot. The crew are eager, the script is written, the set is built, but a shadowy figure is just waiting to say cut. Let's talk scared. Hello, Josh, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm good. I'm really excited to be here because I am such a big fan of your podcast. So it's a bit surreal, <laughs> but I'm very happy. <laughs> You're more than welcome. Glad to have you. Where in the world are you today? I'm in Suffolk. I just moved here about five months ago. I spent 17 years living in London and I just suddenly just had to get out. <laughs> so I've come back to Suffolk. I have a garden now. It's spectacularly <laughs> awful. It's wild. It's horrible. Um, but just to be able to lean out a door and gasp some fresh air is life-changing. So I'm very happy. <laughs> yeah. I had Charlotte Northedge on the pod before Christmas, and she wrote an entire horror novel about cosmopolitan Londoners who moved to the provinces and then terrible things happened to them. So... <laughs> so tread carefully yeah yeah i yeah, do sort of watch my back a little bit around here you know <laughs> yeah yeah not from those parts um i have actually had a, a good few british authors on the show in recent weeks in between interviewing those pesky americans i've been quietly banging my drum for blighty so you're one of my my roster of of brits that are readdressing the balance I love it. We're out here. We are here. We exist. America is fantastic, but we're yeah. doing stuff too. <laughs> Saying that, your book, Burn the Negative, is actually quite a nice transatlantic segue because it's about LA and Hollywood, but from a British POV. Um, and of course, it's about a lot more than that because it deals in cursed movies and scary 
monsters, but that half outsider, half insider perspective should make for an interesting conversation, I think. Because what people don't know is that you spent quite a lot of time on movie sets. <laughs> yeah, well, I was kind of slightly um, planning ahead when I made the lead character more of a Brit than American. She's She was born in America. She moved to England with her family when she was eight and she grew up here. So she's been in the UK for about 30 years before she goes back to America. And that was basically me covering my back a little bit because I was worried that if I wrote uh, an American protagonist, I would be opening myself up to so many entryways for ridicule from American readers where <laughs> I didn't nail the authenticity. And I thought, well, I can I can probably pull off a Brit in America, you know. <laughs> well, Sting did it, didn't he? You know, England yeah. and New York and all that. Uh, yeah, but yes, because you, you, you can kind of, you can say petrol rather than gas and get away with it, stuff like that. Because when I try, I, I slip pretty easily into an American idiom because I read so much American fiction. But then when you try and write it, you realise how many things that you just don't think about that we that are so unique to the way we say them. Yeah, even things like Lego. We say Lego, they say Legos, plural. And it, it's such a small thing, but it's like, it's just such a, it really makes you stand out as an outsider if you say Lego to an American. So let me get this right. They say Legos, plural, but math, singular. <laughs> yeah. Look, there's no logic to it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So well, you, you've mentioned your protagonist there. So let's go a bit further. Start us off with an introduction to Burn the Negative. What, what do my listeners need to know about this book? It's about a, a journalist called Laura Warren. She's uh, lived in the UK, as I said, for you know 30 years. And she writes for a magazine called Zeppelin Magazine, which is sort of like a pop culture entertainment magazine, the likes of which, sadly, we are rapidly losing. And she is dispatched to Los Angeles by her editor to visit the set of a horror streaming series called It Feeds. The problem is that on the plane on the way to LA, Laura's reading the press release about the show and she discovers that it's actually a remake of a cursed 1993 horror film called The Guest House, which is the film that she starred in as a child actor in the 90s. Do you want to mention The Needleman? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's like a little thing about a needleman. Um, the Needleman is the, is the villain of The Guest House, and he's this sort of um, creepy, shadowy figure who haunts the guest house, killing people, sort of in, in uh, creatively strange ways that could be accidents, could be actual slasher murders. Yeah, so Laura sort of starts seeing the Needleman. First she sees him on the plane, then she sees him on set when she arrives on the set in Los Angeles. And she sort of decided that this curse doesn't exist. She... Um, you know, it's the reason that she fled Hollywood. It's the reason that her relationship with her mother, who really wanted her to be in Hollywood, it's the reason that relationship fell apart. And so for her, this movie is sort of so something she wants to keep in her as far in the rearview mirror as she possibly can. So she doesn't believe that she really is seeing the needleman. She thinks that she's plain tired. She's jet lagged. She's completely spun out by the fact that she's there. She's clearly been tricked into going by her editor who must know who she is but you know what's actually going on is it really the Neil man or is it her own um sort of like tired brain just spinning out 
Beautifully done. Monsters, cursed movies, lots to talk about. But first of all, I was thinking about this in relation to your previous book, which I haven't read yet because, you know, um, Burn the Negative is my introduction to you. But your previous novel, your debut, was called The Shadow Glass. And from what I can tell, it centers on an 80s-style puppet fantasy TV show, kind of in the guise of Labyrinth or Dark Crystal. Um, and I, I have to read it now. But that novel, just like Burn the Negative, sounds like it's founded and mired in nostalgia. So to, let's start there. Is nostalgia a strong influence for you? I think that I'm definitely somebody who who looks at the past with rose-tinted glasses. You know, I, I'm, I'm more comfortable looking at the past and feeling sort of um, positive about it than I am about maybe the present or the future. <laughs> you know, I look into the future, mm-hmm. I see a big gaping, gaping black hole um, where anything could happen, not necessarily good stuff. Um, and the past, I'm is certain it's done. So I, I definitely do have a deep-rooted streak or love of nostalgia. Um, and maybe it's something about hitting your 30s where you you sort of you've identified the things in terms of pop culture that make you feel good. I think those things mm-hmm. are set very much in your teen years. I think it's actually been scientifically um, studied where around 13, 14, that's the time in your life when you are sponging in all of these influences and you're discovering what you love. And those things stick. And yeah, I think it's the brain's way of of finding what makes us feel good quickly. And so that's why, for me, it's Labyrinth. I grew up with that film. That film has become ingrained in my DNA. I can feel it in my body. You know, just talking about it gives me goosebumps. And so when I was looking to write, you know, casting around, trying to think about what I was going to write next, um, this is years ago, I just started thinking about these great 80s puppet fantasy films like the ones that you mentioned and like never ending story the, the storyteller the series by jim henson things like that and how it's it's so tragic that those films aren't being made anymore those original ips feel long dead long gone and so the shadow glass was born out of this real need to have more of that um for what for whatever reason I don't really you know I think I felt like I just wanted to bring puppets back for myself and then by you know the byproduct of that was perhaps I could bring it back for for other people as well but what about but the negative then because is that a similarly nostalgic thing for a previous era of horror yeah I'll burn the negative is completely my my nod to 90s horror um I set, I originally sort of decided that the the film in the book was was from the 90s purely based on the age of the character but then as I started thinking about the 90s I was I, I was sort of a bit shocked you know it's when you're confronted with something really obvious all of the horror films that I love the majority of them are from the 90s because I was a teenager in the 90s and um, I was discovering horror through 90s horror films like Candyman and Scream um and i know what you did last summer in urban legend and all those sort of very teen slasher kind of films bride of chucky um i love bride <laughs> of chucky as well 
which definitely played into Shadow Glass weirdly in like a weird kind of way. So yeah, yeah, but a long way of saying to answer your question is yes. <laughs> Burn the Negative is 90s, Shadow Glass is 80s, yeah. So if you want me asking, how old are you? I am 39. Same age as me, exactly then. Uh-huh. Because it's weird, because I, I have a love for 80s horror. I, I, I always think of the 90s as kind of quite a fallow period, because I never had the love for Scream that everyone else has. My, my 90s in horror are kind of, the, the highlights for me are Candyman, for sure, and like Event Horizon later in the decade. But I, I'm much more 80s. I think I was projecting kind of 80s horror onto Burn the Negative, even though I know <laughs> it wasn't. I totally get what you mean, that, yeah, the 90s was a... a, a creatively unusual decade for horror i think there were lots of you know there's always bandwagon jumping but i think that that was especially true for the 90s but for me the 90s were kind of the 80s as well because scream was that gateway into this world of horror that i didn't really know anything about so all the films that they talk about in scream like friday the 13th and halloween and nightmare on elm street Mm. i hadn't seen any of those so i kind of discovered them through scream Okay. One thing I do want to ask about nostalgia, and this is not really fair because I've basically got you on to talk about your book and I'm going to ask you like a really sort of sociological question. But <laughs> I, I I rant about nostalgia a lot because I think it's been perverted by bad people. <laughs> I haven't said this for a while. I used to say it all the time in the early days of the podcast that I blame Denton Abbey for the entire fall of Western civilization. Um <laughs> But I, I, there's this nostalgia about making us long for a sort of fictitious time when things were supposedly better, but they they weren't really, you know, and they certainly weren't if you weren't white and male. Um, but that there seems to be a separate strand of pop culture nostalgia that I don't know. I wonder whether it whether it is distinct from that. Is it purer? You know, people mine and your age looking back at the Goonies and Neverending Story and thinking. Art was better then. Are, are we right or are we just being naive? <laughs> I think that every every decade, every generation is nostalgic for a previous era. So <clears throat> for my parents, it was the 70s. Um, and for you know their parents, it was the 20s or the 30s or whatever. So I think that we're always going to look back nostalgically about the culture that we grew up in, definitely the popular culture that we grew up in. Yeah, but I know what you mean about it becoming this sort of horrible gremlin-like thing that people can use to just sort of, I don't know, like almost um, insidiously, you know, it's sort of like, well, if you liked that, then you're definitely going to love this, you know, trying to monetize Mm. people's memories and monetize people's um, affection for something. Yeah, I think that is quite cynical and maybe artistically bereft and as I'm saying this I'm terrified that that's what I've done but hopefully that's not what I've done Um, because I think what was important to me was well I guess the thing is that these films kind of are my references they're the things I think about and talk about Mm -hmm. constantly Um, so they're my language as much as they are a moment in my past so when I'm writing about these films it's purely an expression of of kind of the way I see the world, I guess, and it, I can't I can't extricate that from my writing. I don't think. No, nor should you try. I don't think. You know, we are. I think we we write the books that we read in a, in a way. Um, I was having this conversation last night about 
arguing with my dad about who the most influential writer of the 20th century is. And I was saying it's Stephen King, because of course I was. And I was saying the only person who may rival him for true influence is J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, yeah. Tolkien is influential even now because people are trying to actively not write like him, and that's still a kind of influence. Yeah, you know? that's that's so true. It's funny because um, I was talking to a friend recently and she was saying how, I hope she won't mind me sharing this, but she was saying how when she wrote something for um, her degree, the the mark the person who marked the work kind of said, oh, try to, try to be original, don't just rip off um, J.R. Tolkien. And uh, she had never read Lord of the Rings. She had never mm. sort of seen anything sort of to do with those those books or those stories. So that's how penetrative penetrative his ideas um, mm. about fantasy are. They've they've sort of just become um, disseminated into our culture without necessarily having to touch base with it firsthand. Yeah, completely. And, and to link that to horror and to your book, that idea of influence, one of the things that I kept thinking throughout this reading Burn the Negative is that you run absolutely, and in my opinion, quite boldly, full tilt at the Freddy Krueger references. OK, because, you know, the Needleman, your monster killer slasher, whatever you want to call him, at times he sort of invokes or exploits a dreamlike state and he has needles for fingers so i'm assuming freddy krueger was a was a strong influence on you and your writing i just think that 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 silhouette that image is just so so horror that it's almost similar to jr tolkien it's sort of become its own part of the the horror landscape or the horror iconography to the point where films like the babadook are allowed to to pretty much replicate exactly that image. Um, you know, you've got the guy in the hat with the, the, the sharp fingers. So I felt mm-hmm. like I was kind of, I was cautious about it. I did question it because the imagery is similar, but I think that it's it has become almost its own unlicensed maybe sort of um, entity. You know, it's, become representative maybe it's mm. it's an image that is fun to play around with in in a different way you know with, with shadow glass i took puppets and i wanted to use a puppet story to talk about a father-son relationship and the concept of failure and so with burn the negative i wanted to take the needleman and talk about the concept of monsters and what they mean to um not just the not just sort of like the pop culture and the people who watch them but also you know the the people who've been around them um, physically, mm-hmm. like the Laura Warren, she was the star of the film and she met the Needleman in costume. What does that mean, you know? It's interesting you mentioned silhouettes because one of the lines in the book that I underlined the minute I read it is some, I can't remember where it is exactly, but somebody says that a, a good horror villain is all about the silhouette. And I started thinking about that and it is so true. I can't really think of a really truly iconic horror character that you couldn't pick out by his silhouette alone. Perhaps only Norman Bates is the exception to the rule, and that's perhaps because Norman Bates is terrifying because he is so normal. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that silhouette is so important. Did you think that concept up? 
I I would love to say that I did. I I'm pretty sure that I heard um was in I feel like Robert England talked about it when he was talking about Freddy Krueger and he sort of talked okay. about the silhouette and how he was playing around with the cowboy um gait, you know, the dropped hip um and the way that he that Freddy Krueger moved. I I'm pretty sure that it was him talking about that the Freddy Krueger silhouette anyway. Um yeah, I don't know. It's, I can't remember. I've got, do you know what? I've got the worst memory. So I really hope that I didn't um, pinch that from anybody. And if you can tell me who it was, I will absolutely credit them. But I, yeah, I, I kind of think it is interesting how there is something really powerful about that silhouette. Because it, if you're in a dark room, you know, the shape of a, a large hulking man in a hockey mask, that's terrifying. And But even the shape of sort of like ghost face with it, that sort of flowing cape thing with the knife you know they're such they're images that when you go to bed at night you can picture them standing in your doorway which i think is probably why they're so effective yeah there's probably a whole like study you could do on on the effects of silhouettes or something or like you know like link it to the russia test or whatever but it, it feels like that that it's just a thing you can yeah you can project onto anything can't you in your mind's eye yeah and surely it's like a cave cave person type holdover you know we're yeah we're trained to spot danger so mm-hmm. for us now danger is fictional um movie serial killers <laughs> you know that penetrate <laughs> our yeah. subconscious well the reason i ask if, you, if that was your concept is because it's actually made it's written down in one of these full documents that you reproduce sort of visually between chapters so when if anyone has the physical copy of this book every chapter in between it has got like a black page with as if there is a crude photocopy um of a a page of a document of some kind or a social media post or stuff like that uh it's a kind of it's a it's a technique of verisimilitude i suppose but what was the motivation behind that illusion why did you choose to do that because it must make it must make publishing harder work (laughs) it was a lot of work not only for me but also for my editor um so if my editor said oh we need to break this chapter in two i'm thinking i've got to write another interstitial and we've got to think about what's going to go (laughs) in there and then the designer she um just absolutely went for it and designed them to look completely like actual documents. I couldn't believe the level of detail that she went into. Oh, they're really well done. She's put doodles on the script pages. Some of them are really spooky. The Shadow Glass has a a very similar technique where in between each chapter, you have a, a found document that sort of illuminates certain aspects of the mythology or the, of the world or the characters. Um, and I think, I know that Grady Hendrix did it in the final girl support group, but yeah. Shadow Glass, I'd finished writing that before I, I read that book. So all I can think is that I read Paul Tremblay's A Heart Full of Ghosts and I loved his blog posts, um, which were a blogger sort of analysing horror, I think. It's been a while since I've read it, but mm. kind of digging into the horror and the um, the, the culture around certain um properties and so when i was writing shadow glass i thought a fun way of conveying a lot of information in a very short space of time 
um, would be to, to create these found documents. And, you know, I'm, I love pace. I'm obsessed with pace and structure. I want things to move quickly. <laughs> I think I've got quite a, a short attention span. So anything that helps me move a story along is, is gold, in my opinion. Um, and those okay. documents, I think, hopefully did it in sort of an entertaining way. And I think that like a weird sort of um, benefit of that, like a, a weird side effect of that, is that with The Shadow Glass, you kind of started to hopefully feel like you actually were a fan of this film that we're talking about because you've read reviews and interviews and script pages and all these kinds of things that fans would read. Um and so hopefully a similar thing happens with Burn the Negative as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's really successful because I, I, for a start, I love stuff like that. Any kind of interstitial stuff. It, it, I, I just find it, ex- it, it excites the bibliophile in me. You know, I, I like a paper book and I think it rewards having a paper book and making room on your shelf when you could just get on your Kindle, but, you know, you don't. And you were kind enough to send me a copy of the book I only had a PDF and it was really... <laughs> I was not getting the best impression of it. But what's good about your particular example is I genuinely had to Google a few times to see if the document was real. Um, <laughs> and that's and that's that's true. And it, it made me laugh at one point that you include a, a book by Matt Glasby because I was like, I know that name. And then I real I, I sort of t- and I realised he follows me on Twitter and I follow him and he was he was a colleague of yours at Total Film is is that right Yeah yeah he's like one of my writing um, therapists maybe you know he's somebody right. I've got a group of friends who I will text or or email or call or whatever whenever I'm feeling a bit like ah uh, you know just a bit lost in the world of words. And Matt Glasby is just one of those guys who's just so, such a lovely person, loves, loves, loves horror films, is so knowledgeable about horror. I respect his opinion and his thoughts on anything that I do sort of 100%. So I I just sort of wanted to give those people like a little tip of the hat. So there are other people in my books who are Mm -hmm. real real people as well, because, you know, why not? It's it's my world. (laughs) I'm going to pop them in there. I mean, yeah, it was just a fun little joke. It reminded me of Tremblay does it himself with John Langan and with Stephen Graham Jones. They're all referenced in each other's books. It's quite a fun little game to play when you start reading them in, in, in close proximity to each other. But that that bit of verisimilitude aside, that's the second time I've used that word in one interview, um, I was really happy to see that you don't especially go for a kind of full-throated metafiction. So Burn the Negative is very much about the horror industry, but it never feels like it's trying to actively deconstruct it in a postmodern way, in the way that so many books have. Um, did you want to be more earnest than that? Was Did you want to shy away from that kind of intellectual exercise as opposed to storytelling? Um... um... Maybe you're assuming that I'm more intellectual than I actually am. <laughs> I uh... no, but you have a lot of in, you have you. I know that you have a lot of inside knowledge about the film industry. Yeah, and you could have made this a real sort of self-reflexive postmodern gimmick, and you didn't. You told a story that just happened to be about something that other people tend to deconstruct. Yeah, I felt. I feel like 
surely scream was kind of the last word on postmodernism and everything after that is sort of slightly surplus to requirement so with this this book was never really about me wanting to to you know tear apart or put back together horror movies it was just about laura warren you know i i it was about Laura and it was about Beverly, the psychic in the book. And it was about uh, Laura's sister, Amy. Those were the three people I was really interested in. Um, and yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to do any kind of um, deeply uh, intelligent, analytical sort of study of horror. I think there are far better qualified people to do that. I just wanted to tell a story and that story was Laura's. I realise, thinking back now, it sounds like I just said that your book wasn't clever. And that's, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> what I mean is, that I think there's there's a lot of writing about horror and the industry that that some are successful. I think you mentioned one, Grady Hendrix's last Final Girl. You know, um, Final Girl Support Group is a really successful sort of self-reflexive discussion of of, of slashes and what what Stephen Graham Jones is doing with the. The Indian Lake trilogy is is really clever, but a lot of them, I think, get get lost in their own. I don't know their their, their own back patting sometimes. <laughs> I, I'm a bit tired of deconstruction over storytelling. You know, I just want something that I enjoy. Yeah, I I think that surely that those things are surely really difficult to write because you're imposing such strict limitations on the story that I feel mm. like you know, the story just wouldn't behave. I think it would become quite rickety and not necessarily the the emotional experience that you might want somebody to have if, if you're going for that cold, that cold analytical approach instead. I completely agree. I, I think that's why Grady Hendrix and Stephen Graham Jones are doing such remarkable work because somehow they've managed to take that you know, what could be a gimmicky approach and invest it with so much emotion and so much heart that I'm not entirely sure how they've pulled it off. But Oh, yeah. I could study those books for years and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't even see where the seams are, but it, it's so well done. But just to come back at you, when you said the last word on postmodernism is scream, I, I think it's Daniel Lewski's House of Leaves, but I'll just, oh, I'll just leave that there. That's a book that scares me. Um, I haven't read it and I'm scared to because it it is a purely um, is it epistolary sort of like found found documents type book yeah yeah it's about as epistolary as you can get why does that scare you I I don't know I've just maybe I would love it I I really do struggle with my concentration sometimes reading but maybe right. that sort of approach would actually really appeal to me because it's it's constantly changing and, and offering up new things rather than just that you know the, the same stretch of pages that are no no mm. you know visibly no different throughout the book so yeah maybe i should get over my my own prejudice or my own self limitations and just and just read it yeah it's the kind of book you have to like own a desk to read because <laughs> you have to sort of sit there with pen and paper and make notes and do you know what i mean it's 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 the it's the least passive reading experience you'll ever have but i i think it's i think it's truly unparalleled um, but back to your books, I've been talking to too many other authors, uh, and this is your hour to shine. We've talked there about, like, you know, I just said to you that I want a book I just enjoy. And then when I was reading the afterword to Burn the Negative, you credit someone called Mark Tavani for believing in the value of fun horror. Now, 
I don't know who Mark is, but I'm right there with him. Because I've been saying for a while that fun has become this this term of almost, you know, diminishing praise. And it shouldn't be, because I think fun is great. Fun is kind of one of the linchpins of fiction. But I wonder, what does fun horror mean to you? I have to apologise because a lot of my references will be movies. I feel, I feel like a slight. That's fine. I feel like a bit of an imposter in the book world because I'm nowhere near as well read as I should be. Um, but I have been thinking about the horror films that I do enjoy, and I think they're often the ones that, that as I mentioned, are sort of pacey, high concept, um, sort of are are horrific, do do horrific things, but but they aren't sort of super super concerned with being um something bigger than they are you know they're 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 fun you know they've got you know chucky in them using a saucepan to kill somebody um you know there's even things like halloween h2o which i do love um you know that for me is fun horror. Oh, that was as my well. first eighteen in the cinema. That uh, <laughs> my first eighteen rated movie in the cinema. Me and my cool. friends snuck in. I, yeah, so I've got a real fondness for that film. I I love that film, and I always will. I, and I love the music in it. I think. Oh, anyway, um, fun horror. Yeah, I. I don't know. I think that I wrote. So Mark Devani is my editor, and he's fantastic. He's he was so great editing this book, um, and I think that I wrote that that in my acknowledgements because there was a sense or I mean not a sense someone explicitly said when a publisher turned down burn the negative in the UK their reasoning was that horror readers don't want this kind of horror they want literary horror and Mm. now I hate that phrase I know a lot of people hate that phrase I think it's (laughs) extremely tenuous and weirdly what like divisive like what does that even mean literary horror um so that stumped me because i was sort of a bit like well i can't fight against that at all and so that kind of left me thinking well if i'm not literary horror maybe i i'm just going to say that i'm fun horror and, and kind of go with that instead the phrase elevated horror is one that gets my goat <laughs> and i've heard people defending it and i think it's an indefensible comment but that's just me uh, but yeah. I don't know about you, but like when I watch kind of the the A twenty four movies, I know I'm supposed to sit there rapturously and applaud the lighting and the cinematography, but I just don't care. Like I, I mean, there are exceptions. Don't get me wrong, but I watched The Witch and I had to watch it three times. I had to go to the cinema and pay three times because I fell asleep the first two times. Oh, no. And then the one the one that finished me off was a film called Something. So, so was it like it comes at night or something like that? Yeah. And I was just like, I haven't got the bandwidth for this. And I've come to the conclusion that whilst I have the sort of pretensions of intellect when it comes to fiction, and I can wax lyrical about literary techniques and all of that, when it comes to movies, I'm an idiot. And I just <laughs> I just like things to be like really good stories. I don't want to particularly dwell too much on inner meanings and all that. I, I cannot bring the same attention I could bring to a book, to a film. I just can't. Oh, so I am with you on fun horror. Chain, yeah. Bring out the chainsaws, you know. I think that elevated horror and literary horror have been used by certain people for the same reasons, and that's to sort of distance them from mainstream horror. And my question is, what's wrong with mainstream horror? There's some great mainstream horror out there. Precisely, yeah, yeah. I mean, no one would have called The Exorcist elevated horror. Mm. It is. I mean, it has all the 
touch points and all of the stylistic kind of quirks that an A24 film has these days. I mean, because let's face it, Hereditary is basically trying to replicate it, you know. Um, but it was just a horror film, right? It was it was just a horror film, and it was one of the best ever made. So I, I, I agree. I think there's no reason to kind of ring fence anything. It's just horror, and it's good enough, in my opinion. Um, but what about your film? So your film within this book, The Guest House, I was thinking about it, and it's quite a weird idea for a 90s sort of popular horror movie. It's about a, sort of a cursed British B&B. Um, <laughs> how, how did you land on that? I was thinking about The Innkeepers by Ty West, which okay. I've, re- I've only seen it once, but I really enjoyed it. And it's set in a, a supposedly haunted hotel in America. Um, I think it's set over a single night and it's about the the night staff who encounter scary stuff. And I was also thinking about films like the Amityville Horror, where, you know, obviously freaky stuff happens in a, in a single house. And I don't know, I just thought, have I seen a, a horror film set in a guest house, you know, a British guest house? Because there's something a bit spooky about that. And I kind of loved the idea that maybe in this fictional version of the 90s that we're talking about, that an American director, maybe through travelling in England, discovered this thing called the guest house and decided to make a horror film about it. You know, it was just sort of a bizarre thing to do. And you're right, it doesn't really fit maybe in that sort of era. But maybe maybe like Hellraiser, I was thinking about that house in Hellraiser, which is Mm -hmm. set in, uh, is it in Ealing in London? So there were lots of parts and pieces that I was thinking about um, subconsciously. I don't, I'm not sure how much I was actually conscious because I was just scribbling any old crap down as I usually do. <laughs> and that's how it was birthed, essentially. I want to see it because it, it made me think of, um, you know, The Changeling, the, yes, old, the late 70s movie with George yeah. C. Scott. It had a feel of that to me, that, that weird sort of suburban English horror that just doesn't it doesn't feel a piece with anything else really it feels very much of itself um and that's what i kept thinking about like when i was reading the names of the characters like mrs manners it just felt like something that would be in that kind of movie yeah yeah broader question i suppose what sort of inspired you to write about a cursed film because if we haven't made it clear the guest house the original is cursed anyone who was involved with it has kind of had a bad ending and that curse seems to be replicating itself but what what inspired that general theme um i think so i've just got the worst memory but i think it was in discussion with my agent which obviously makes it sound really clinical and cynical but actually knocking around ideas with my agent is one of the most fun is the the most fun i have really (laughs) she's a, a massive horror fan as well and so i was talking about doing a a book about a psychic because the psychic came first in my in my planning and then I was thinking mm-hmm. about pairing them up with um, a former actor a child actor and it just sort of like grew from there I don't know if my agent was the one who said what if the film's cursed I can't remember um, I've got like a bit of a funny relationship with the idea of cursed films because even though the idea of a cursed film, I think, is quite 
fascinating and tantalizing and creepy there's also that sense of real genuine loss you know people genuinely died either during the making of or after the making of certain films you know i'm talking about things like the omen and poltergeist Mm -hmm. those really famous supposedly cursed films um so i was a bit hesitant at first when i started thinking about the idea but then i thought well I'm not intending to celebrate cursed movies. I'm more interested in getting down into why do we find them so interesting as a concept and what does it mean to the people who actually were involved in those productions? That's a great point. And I I know what you mean because we almost turn it into an extension of the drama of the film, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we forget there were real people. I mean, the one that comes to mind for me, I don't know if you're aware of this. Have you ever heard of the film The Conqueror with John Wayne? Uh, no. So it it's the one where he plays Genghis Khan. Oh, um, yes. But if that, if that wasn't problematic enough, they filmed it literally downwind from a nuclear testing site in oh, the Mojave. Man. So a lot of the cast and crew died of cancer. Yeah, and, and that often comes up on some of the more obscure list of curse films over the years. But again, it's treated like an anecdote. It's treated like an addendum to the film rather than an absolute tragedy and loss of life. <laughs> you know, it's really odd. Yeah, it's um, it really is. Like you said, it's treated as an extension of the narrative of the film. And I think people, I think maybe one of the reasons horror films are so effective is is if they are good, they resonate and they linger and you're thinking Mm. about them days and weeks and months afterwards. And I think that the idea that this film is somehow cursed amplifies that and keeps that alive and, and keep, and sort of, yeah, keeps the story alive outside of the experience of watching it perhaps. Mm. Yeah. And and you do get quite a lot of mileage from that in, in the book about the fact that, sort of exactly what we're talking about the fact that it has been it has been narrativized all this loss of life that laura is so traumatized by the reason she changed her identity um and and sort of fled the film it's been taken by the fanboys and by the you know the blogosphere and it's been turned into a sort of fun little anecdote about the movie and then it's also been turned into like marketing for the remake and there's a real crass commercialism at play isn't there (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's this whole thing where a psychic has been hired to watch over the set of this remake series. It feeds just in case anything spooky happens. You know, it's all very haha, nudge, mm. nudge, wink, wink. And Laura, obviously, having been on the set of the film where everyone died, is just like, what the hell is this? What are you doing? Why? How has this become such a circus? You know, loss and death and grief has become something that you can monetize to promote this piece of crap remake that you're working on we've mentioned the psychic a few times um what's this i i've read this somewhere josh and i don't know where but (laughs) what's this about the book being partly inspired by your own visit to a psychic yes um so i met lorraine warren which is where laura gets her surname from did you yeah, I met Lorraine Warren. Can we just can we just clarify for everyone who Lorraine Warren is? She was the paranormal investigator, famous in the 70s in particular for investigating cases like the Amityville Horror. She came to the UK to check out Baldy Rectory, 
Um, she's been immortalized in the Conjuring films where she's played by Vera Farmiga and her husband is played by Patrick Wilson. Um, and she was just really interesting. You know, I went to her house in 2013 as part of press for Conjuring 2. And I got to spend some time with her, chatted with her. She took me down into her occult museum. She built this house that was sort of, I think it's 13 levels. It's not 13 stories, but it's sort of one of those, um, you know, lots of steps down and all this kind of stuff, because she said that that was a protective magical kind of number. Um, And I didn't really believe that she was psychic because I don't generally believe in that that kind of, um, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff, phenomenon. Um, But I did believe that she believed because she was so firm in her um her christianity she really believed that god was protecting her she went and walked around these houses and she picked up energy and god protected her and i just thought wow that is quite something to believe and i just thought wouldn't it be really interesting if if you could pair a psychic up with a journalist because here we are you know and and put them on a on a case like that was the the very beginning of the idea um, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny if it was actually the psychic who was skeptic and the journalist who sort of believed? <laughs> so that's the game I kind of play with a little bit in Burn the Negative. Oh, wow. I'm so glad I asked about that. I can't believe you've met Lorraine Warren. That's um, out of interest. What What was her sort of opinion on the Conjuring movies? Oh, God, what did she think of them? Um, I really should dig out my interview. She... I think she was just sort of quite complimentary and just sort of, you know, yep, that's exactly how it happened. I went into that house (laughs) and I walked around. You know, she really was sort of um, complimentary towards the film. I don't really know how much of it was was true. I don't want to speak ill of the dead because she did pass away a few years ago. But, um, you know, I think she was quite excited to be part of that Hollywood machine. They had a video of um, when Vera Farmiga came to visit their house. Yeah, it was just this curious combination of somebody who was clearly very devout and believed in her investigations while also being part of this lucrative Hollywood machine. Wow. That's, that's, that might be one of the coolest anecdotes I've been told in this show. Um... <laughs> she was really sweet. She was very kind and she was very sweet. She was a really sweet person. She, it was like going to grandma's house. I felt so comfortable in her in her company. Wow. I'm finding that hard to believe because I, I, I can only see Vera Farmiga, who I think is one of the most stunning women alive. So I'm struggling to convert <laughs> into like little old Lorraine Warren, not oh, around her yeah. story house. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's just, it's, it's, sorry, you've kind of put me on the back foot. It's just such a cool story that you've met Lorraine Warren. But I mean, you, I, I'd like to talk about how much you've taken from your real life experience of, of film sets and the industry for this book. And my first question, I suppose, is have you found film sets to be particularly superstitious places in your experience? Or are Ooh. they cold, cynical, no time for that kind of bullshit? Do you know what? I've never actually asked. I've been on quite a few of them and I can't think that anybody has ever talked about superstitions on the set um but i right yeah but i do know that they can be quite creepy <laughs> in what way it just in just in the realism you know you you walk into this enormous warehouse that 
you, often you're in LA, um, sometimes you're in Wales, which I was for um, being human, the, the BBC Supernatural series that was popular quite a few years mm-hmm. ago. It was about a vampire, a werewolf and a ghost. Um, so you're going inside from quite a sunny environment into a pure black space. It takes a second for your eyes to adjust. It's very disorienting. And then suddenly you become aware of the fact that this is sort of, it's a real hive of activity. There are people milling around. Everyone's got a job. Everyone's busy doing something. Everyone, you know, there's banging and hammering. People are making stuff. And then you see the sets and the sets are just remarkable. Um, So I went on the set of Game of Thrones. I can't remember which year it was. It was series three. And they were these enormous enclosed they're almost like smaller versions of the Roman Colosseum where they are these enclosed wooden structures that on the outside just look like, you know, nothing really. And then either you walk through a doorway or you turn the corner and the, the, the set opens out and suddenly you're in the Eyrie um, or you're in the, the throne room um, in Westeros. Mm. And it's just a really disorienting experience because you're sort of inside but but outside it looks really real but you know it's fake even the lighting makes it look real it's strange it's a really strange experience and it just felt like a ripe setting for for a horror story and you conjure that quite well in in the book because this guest house kind of exists in its completion inside this studio lot and there is an element of disorientation that Laura feels that I mean, it's not a spoiler, but at one point there is a house fire and it's like, yeah, this is a set, but it's also a genuine house fire because this is a genuine house indoors. There's a weirdness to that that's quite quite fun to exploit, I think. So writing that scene in particular, the thing that I really liked about it was it, it was different actually to my experience because Laura was going there with an enormous amount of baggage, emotional baggage, whereas mm-hmm. I was going to set just to sort of marvel at it and report on it. And I wanted to be there. It was fantastic. And what a, what a privilege and opportunity. With Laura, she did not want to be there. Um, it was stirring up all these memories and, and things that she's pushed down for so long. And so it was fun to sort of, see it through her perspective and how that felt for somebody who wasn't me essentially well yeah because it's quite literally a haunted house but the weird haunted the weirdest haunted house in the world because it was like built three weeks ago and it's not even real in the true sense but it's still a haunted house there's there's a cool kernel in that that i haven't quite unpicked but it it's it's there you know like the the uncanny the unhomely all that sort of stuff yeah very much. And I'm glad you brought us to Laura, because to kind of draw this towards an end, to get serious for me, I suppose, she embodies the harm that is done to child actors. And we've seen it, you know, particularly with actors from the 90s and 80s and 90s, you know, Drew Barrymore and Corey Feldman and Macaulay Culkin and all these people who've had rough old times since they were became famous. Um, have you seen it firsthand, ever that? Have you ever seen... The, the 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 damage done to, to a child star fortunately i haven't um i have interviewed child actors and it's a similarly bizarre experience mm. um because you feel like what well, you should be at school <laughs> <laughs> i was i was on set i was on location actually for a, a british horror film called the children which is about children that's who, a great movie i think they flip out and start yeah. eating people or whatever 
Um, and I, yeah, I sat with a, a couple of journalists and talked to the little girl in the film. And she was just like this sweet little thing and, um, you know, answered some questions to the best of her ability. She wasn't, she was about seven or eight, you know, my nephew is seven or eight. And I cannot imagine him being interviewed for a, a national magazine. Um, I did interview Chloe Grace Moretz when she was in uh, Let Me In. And I was really struck by her maturity, her apparent maturity. You know, she was sitting there with a, a phone, age 13, um, completely comfortable in a scrum of journalists and talking intelligently and enthusiastically about this movie that she'd made, how, you know, she'd written her own vampire book as part of her preparation, all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, God, you know, that I cannot imagine being like that at that age, let alone making a, a film and being in the public eye. It's just a, it's a mind boggling thing to me. And it sounds like a great thing. Oh, isn't she clever? Isn't she talented? Isn't she confident? But yeah, you're, you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to be like a spotty, nervous wreck when you're 13. So it, I, I think we I mean, what do I know? But I, it seems to me that it's such an unhealthy thing for that spotlight to be cast on someone so young when they're they still kind of have this fractured persona. And, you know, I remember when I was 13, I didn't know the hell I was, you know, uh, and to be told who you are by an industry and to be told who you are by by magazines and pop culture, it, they may, it may look cool, but it, it cannot be good. And I think, you know, you deal with that in, in the book, particularly through the guise of, of, of Laura's mother, who is an absolute abomination of a woman. Yeah, I kind of, I guess... With her, I was kind of playing around with the trope of the the soccer mom, the theatre mom, that kind of character. What was the phrase? Was it tiger mom they called them a few years back? Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. Um, and yeah, it was actually difficult to figure out how far to push her because you could mm. go into the realm of complete unbelievability where she's so horrific that actually that could never happen. So when I came up with things like the match game, it's horrible and so um, abusive yeah. and, and a terrible thing to do. But it's just it's just safe enough that you believe she could get away with it and no one would ever believe Laura as a kid if she'd talked about it. Yeah, it's pretty grim. And then way back, you know, towards the start of this, we talked about fun horror. Um, and one of the things that I'd usually say is the opposite of fun horror is this new kind of story that's, overwhelmingly focused on trauma metaphors so the babadook comes to mind i mean the babadook's a film i love but you couldn't really say it's fun horror um and i'm, I'm not going to particularly spoil certain revelations in this but you do actively engage with trauma in burn the negative in in, in relation to the needle man and what he represents and things like that and did did that not threaten to take the whole book and just make it a lot more serious than you were intending? Yeah, it did. Um, but I felt like I couldn't do it unless I was being true to Laura and try to explore her experience authentically without letting it take over. It, you know, it, it was a, it was a tricky balancing act. Um and I didn't, I think the concept itself basically dictated that it kind of had to be a little bit about trauma. And so I kind of just had to go with it and see where it went. 
I think I kind of saw it more in terms of grief because that's the thing that I do know about firsthand and I can explore. So I I know that trauma and grief are very different things, but in trying to tell Laura's story, I think that my emotional way into it was to think about my own, you know, grief and, and sense of loss and, and terrible things that have happened in my life. Um, so yeah, long answer short, it was difficult mm. and hopefully it kind of resonates without feeling like it's, um, you know, exploitative or sort of just brushing it under the carpet or anything, you know, it, it, it's integral to the story. Oh, I don't think it's exploitative at all. I, um, I think it, it's, it's not ponderous. And I think a lot of trauma horror can be quite ponderous at times. I mean, it's proven itself to be a wonderful tool for, you know, manifesting metaphorical, you know, illustrating whatever trauma, um, but there's so much of it right now, right? There's so much, so many films where monster equals trauma or where, you know, ghost equals trauma. It, it, it almost feels like we're having a big collective catharsis as a, as a <laughs> horror consuming generation, almost like maybe we've, we've all realized we're the first generation to realize we've all got some degree of trauma in our past and we're craving the movies that, that do some sort of short term catharsis for us. That's what it feels like anyway. Yeah, but I do think that trauma has always been a part of um, horror storytelling. You know, just looking at Halloween H2O, that's a film about surviving trauma. Um, Scream, that's that has its own trauma in it as well. Um, you know, like I'm looking at one of my favourites, which I'm sure you must have seen, is Dolores Claiborne. Um, oh, God, yeah. One of the most underrated Stephen King adaptations. Yeah. No one ever talks about it, but it's freaking awesome. Um, that's also about trauma. I think that it's always been there, but maybe it's more explicitly there at the moment. Okay. Yes. Well, I think it's more explicitly there because perhaps we are more explicitly aware of the fact that it's a concept in culture right now. Whereas it's only quite recently, I think, that people acknowledged it. You know, you, you think back to like you know, the post-Vietnam generation and stuff like that and, and shell shock. It's not that long ago that we had no idea about this stuff at all. Do you know what I mean? Whereas now it just feels like a ready-made metaphor, just just there for us. Um, But, you know, to finish on an upbeat note, I suppose, you've always got Winona Ryder to come to the rescue. Uh, (laughs) Not not literally, but, I mean, that would have been quite the third act twist. (laughs) But, yeah, Winona Ryder is a kind of emblem of hope and resilience for Laura in this book. And I've got to ask, is she close to your heart too? Because there's got to be a reason for why she's so important to your protagonist oh completely she is the reason that i watched series one of uh, stranger things i remember when we covered it in total film when it hadn't even gone onto netflix yet and nobody was talking about it nobody cared but i saw that winona rider was in it and i thought okay this is gonna be good um so yeah winona she is that person who was sort of a bit of a conundrum because she was just really cool but also the outsider who everyone appeared to sort of like want to keep there, mm-hmm. you know? So I felt like she was the kind of person through both the character she played and this image that we think of, uh, you know, the idea of her outside of the movies. That's the kind of person I think Laura would look at and kind of go, 
you're a badass, you're a survivor. Um, I want to be just like you. Okay. And I think I'm so glad that you brought her up. Yeah, but I had to give her a little <laughs> nod, you know, because I think I, I I can't abide Stranger Things, but I think she's very, very good in it. Oh. But here's my confession. I've never seen Heather's. Oh, boy. Okay. It's really good. <laughs> you should definitely watch it. Well, your book has now spoiled it's... a certain death for me. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to bother now because I know, I know a certain person dies. Did it? Yeah, yeah. I don't remember doing that. You make a brief reference to her... And and a corpse, and I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, oh crap! Sorry, I didn't even think about that. Right, I need to get that changed. <laughs> <laughs> Might be too late now. I'll, I will I will watch Heather's. Um, but whilst we're on recommendations, can you recommend a book for my listeners, Josh? I can. I think that everybody should read The Last by Hannah Jameson. I don't know if you've heard of it already. Don't know if I have or not. Carry on. Ah. It's about a historian named John Keller who travels to Switzerland and checks into a remote hotel and it's right when nuclear war breaks out. So he finds himself stranded there with 19 strangers. Yes, at a, at a really striking red cover, I remember. Yeah, it's got a great red cover with sort of like a spotlight on a hotel. Uh-huh. Um and a, a, the body of a, of a girl is found in the water tank and he sets out to find out who killed her, even though he's, you know, trapped in this hotel on the edge of the end of the world. Um, I've only read it once. I loved it. I will read it again. I'm a very slow reader, which is why I often don't read things more than once um, unless, you know, enough time has passed. But it's it's one that is clearly one for people who love The Shining. It's got that setting, that's there for the taken. But it cleverly treads that line between horror and detective thriller. And it feels just so real that that in itself is terrifying. Right. Um, so each chapter is like a, a, a day post-nuclear bomb written by John. Some are long and detailed, some are short like desperate like i think day eight day 48 just says keep it together but i think the reason that i just really love it is that it's got a mystery that seems really futile because it's the end Mm -hmm. of the world so why is he bothering to try to solve this apparent murder even though there's every chance the world is going to blow up you know very very imminently um and i think the book brilliantly taps into the the humanity of that situation and like the sense that this one single life still does matter despite the swathes of dead bodies across the the planet Mm -hmm. and that idea that if he can solve the mystery that he can actually prove that we do matter and we do still care okay i mean i assumed I, i remember seeing it and thinking it sounds like like the neatest idea but i didn't think it would have all that depth and all that that texture so you, you've sold me on it and my last question josh what truly scares you <laughs> okay now i'm gonna get real <laughs> okay <laughs> i have been thinking about this a lot because obviously i listened to your podcast and so i had a, a feeling this question might come up um and mm-hmm. you know obviously there are lots of things that scare me but i think the one that sort of frequently just sort of uh unbalances me is my own mind actually right um i think that maybe other people who've suffered from depression can identify but sometimes 
it can be scary the, the way your mind, your brain can just suddenly shift. You know, one day you're fine, the next day you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a vital part of being an author is having that imagination, having that ability to imagine scenarios that may never exist. But I think it's also tied in with anxiety. I think that a lot of my horror writing is tied in with anxiety and finding a way to express it creatively and and sort of productively. So it's like a double-edged sword. You know, you've got this imagination that serves your creative impulses, but on on the flip side, it can get out of control and you can start to get worry about things that are probably never going to happen. Um, but it's difficult to tell your brain that when you're in that kind of crisis space psychologically. I mean, you're speaking to the choir here, Josh. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I did an entire episode with Gemma and Moore about the fact that I'm essentially a, a, a functioning lunatic who reads horror novels and if I'm in the wrong <laughs> mood, thinks they're real. So I completely get where you're coming from. Complete. I was actually talking today. Uh, no, I was I was tweeting today. Uh, another podcast who they posted something about the Stephen King short story N, the, the letter N. Have you ever read that or heard of it? No. It's a phenomenal short story. It's a kind of sort of quasi Lovecraftian thing um, about, you know, the whole non Euclidean geometry things being odd. And it's basically about a psychologist who's seeing a patient who has become obsessed by the fact that he's found this 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 circle of standing stones in a field and every time he counts them there's a different number and he has to ca- he has mm. to count them that there have to be a certain number because he becomes convinced that if there is the wrong number then reality will sort of fail and these eldritch monsters will come through so he has to keep counting them till he gets the right number because that shores up reality and it's basically like a big sort of you know allegory for ocd i suppose but when you're reading it and then but then the idea becomes an infecting thing where the psychologist starts to kind of visit the place and count and and this it's such a scary story because there is this idea amongst people like me and presumably you that what if i got that idea not not what if the monsters exist more what if I fell prey to that kind of infecting thought that ruined my life? Oh, that yeah, that is absolutely horrifying. Yeah. That's really scary. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> so you see, what I've just done there is asked the man what really scares him, and then when he's told me, I've just tortured him with something that really scares him. So I, I yeah, I'm now I'm now seeing what I've done, and I feel really bad about it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Actually, that that could be quite a cathartic reading experience because. I think that a lot of people um, who suffer from depression, I think that a lot of people, you know, everyone kind of has a bit of everything. And I think that if you suffer from depression, you might have a few OCD tendencies as well. And I, I certainly do. Um, and so the thought of having to check is a very OCD trait. And I love the way that story amplifies it to the point of the apocalypse because it can feel like the apocalypse yeah. when you are stuck in those repetitive patterns completely. Well, I'm I'm glad you've taken it well because I felt suddenly incredibly guilty about that because that's like someone telling me about rabies and me having an absolute meltdown. So, yeah, sorry again, but it is a very good story. <laughs> um, 
Right. Well, before I put another foot wrong, let's let's leave it there. So by the time this goes live, Burn the Negative has been out for a good long while. I think it'll appeal to anyone who, you know, is a lover of nostalgic horror like you and I both are. Um, but But for now, Josh, thank you for talking scared. Thank you so much. I felt genuinely bad there at the end. You know, poor Josh lays his fears on the table and I go, here, here's this thing that would be absolutely terrifying for you to think about. Yeah, my bad. Genuinely sorry. Um, There are so many brain worms that I hate to be infected with. I should know better than to curse others. And yes, I have used that as a crude segue to the, the theme of curses because, you know, burn the negative, right? Um, one of the things that I meant to talk about with Josh, but, but didn't, was the sheer pace of this novel. Like, it doesn't stop. And we talked a lot about nostalgia for the 80s and the 90s. But because we focused so much on film, I didn't much mention that the book itself feels like a piece of late horror fiction from that period. So the way I see it, right, there were three main strands of late 80s and early 90s horror You've got the big doorstopper epics of King and Barker and McCammon. You've got the bleak alt-horror stuff of Poppy Z. Bright and Kathy Kozier. And the speedy popcorn novels of writers like Richard Lehman, Sean Hudson, James Herbert. Loads more. Burn the Negative is very much in that camp. It's like Josh has set out to write a horror novel that you can rip through on the beach like it's 1992 all over again you know, wearing ironic tie-dye shorts. Um, it's also part of a whole trend for cursed movie novels that no one seems to be talking about, but it's happening. You know, we have this book. We have Silver Nitrate by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, The Devil's Playground by Craig Russell, Cena Palaio's The Shoemaker's Magician, Ramsey Campbell has come out this year with Ancient Images, and I don't know what sparked the trend, but it's interesting. And the last time we had anything like this, it was all extremely meta. You know, things like House of Leaves and Marisha Pessel's Night Film and Gemma Files' Experimental Film, which is a must-read, by the way. But they're very pole-faced books, very experimental, very self-aware. The current trend seems to be jettisoning the meta, like we discussed, and then just embracing pure fun. And I'm all for it. And speaking of fun, you know I always like to ask a question in the outro. Here's this week's. Am I right or wrong about A24? <laughs> do you like that kind of movie? Or do you want the chainsaws to come back? I mean, I realise the real answer is somewhere nuanced and in the middle. But where the hell is the fun in that? Have we learned nothing from Twitter? Fight! <laughs> you can email me about that or anything at all at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. You can find me on all the socials at Talk Scared Pod. Big thanks required to all the new Patreon subscribers. There have been a lot since the King episode, and I really hope all you Patreons, old and new, are enjoying the raft of bonus stuff. It's pretty varied. There's everything from an interview with the UK's Queen of Extreme Horror, Zoe Rose Smith, to a recent chat with T. King Fisher about Mothman plus candid reviews and extra chat from authors, feel free to sign up at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Um, 
But for those who have, thanks to Ty, to Katie, Monica, Nicole, Francesca, Kale, love that name, Dana, Sarah H, Roberto, Kyle, Daniel W, David, Garrett, Simon, Gia, D Johnson, the list goes on, Rex, Stephen P, Stuart, Simon B, Julie, Matt, Andrew, Aaron, Aaron, don't know, Emma, John, Ian, Michael M, Patricia, Osvaldo, cannot tell you how much I appreciate all of you, and I hope you're happy with the Patreon stuff. I'm back next week with another big episode. Catriona Ward is here to talk about the interlocking intricacies of Looking Glass Sound. If there's any justice in the literary world, this book will become a bona fide classic, and I really mean that. So listen in next week, and if you can, read the book in time, because it's a twisty one. Until then, learn your lines, hit your mark, and tell your streamers they should pay the writers properly. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.